I'm Sam Payne, and joining me in the studio is Charles Holt, the singer and storyteller that's in Utah as a part of Orem Public Library's series, Created Equal, America's Civil Rights Struggle. For the next hour, we're going to focus on the life and words of Dr. King and the music of the civil rights movement as iterated by the work of Mr. Holt. Charles Holt was born and raised in the South in the close-knit community of Lake Providence, Tennessee, a place with gospel roots built up by the Reverend Larry A. Thompson in 1868. Music and storytelling have always been a part of his life. His grandmother was a self-taught pianist who fixed hymns into the mind of young Charles Holt, and her friends were the focus of his early attempts at impersonation. And today, Charles Holt is a real Renaissance man. He's a nationally recognized storyteller, Broadway actor, inspirational speaker, recording artist, and author. He's performed his one-man adaptation of Richard Wright's Black Boy across the United States, including a sold-out performance at the Kennedy Center for the Performing Arts in Washington, D.C. He's received rave reviews and acclaim for his portrayal of W.E.B. Du Bois. His current project, which will be the focus of today's show, is called Martin and Music. Charles Welcome. Thanks so much for being with us. Oh, thank you, Sam. It's an honor to be here, be a part of this. Tell us just a little bit about Martin and Music. Martin and Music is an interesting collaboration. Um, 2011, I had the opportunity of working with Gerald C. Rivers um, at the Buckley School. It's a private school in Los Angeles. And he asked me to come and sing a song. He said, well, Charles, you know, I'm going to do a couple of Martin Luther King speeches. Mm -hmm. And if you'd come and sing a song that you think would be appropriate. So I remember the song that caught my attention years ago. America the Beautiful. As a matter of fact, I sung America the Beautiful the very first audition that I had in New York City when I moved there. And I said, well, you know, I'm going to sing America the Beautiful. And I remember as we sang for this group of 800 silenced children, mesmerized yeah. by the speeches, um, there was this energetic that prompted me to include, this was type, a type of inclusive type of vortex of energy and consciousness that mm. sat upon me. And I said, you know what? Everybody needs to see this. Everybody needs to experience this. And I went home literally from the show and I began to map out what would be called Martin and Music. And I called Gerald and I said, Gerald, I have an idea and we can go across the country and see this, and everybody can have an opportunity to see something that is live and that will give life for generations, just as these speeches and songs have given us. Where does the title come from? Martin and music. Certainly we're talking about the speeches of Martin Luther King and the interaction between those speeches and the music of the time. Tell us a little more about that. The music that we use in the show um, is music from the movement. Yeah. And a lot of people don't, uh, when we think about Martin Luther King a lot, we just think about the speeches. Sure. Yeah. But Martin Luther King's mother was a pianist. She played in the church, and his grandmother was an organist. So on weekends, the family, the King family, would sit around and sing songs. So music, music had a, a, a very strong impression upon, uh, upon Martin Luther King and his family from, from very early childhood. And I thought, this would be a great introduction to the differences in the life that Martin Luther King lived. Not just the speeches, but the life yeah. and what gave him impulse to, to pin these words 
The first piece you're going to do for us is I Shall Not Be Moved. Mm -hmm. Tell us about your feelings about that song. My grandmother used to sing that. She used to hum it as she dusted her house. I'd be dusting with her. And I'd say, Granny, what you singing? She said, oh, it's an old, old song. And they used to sing it when they marched. And she didn't give much, you know, indication to where it all began. But the words tell the story. Sure. Um, in the beginning was the movement. And in the beginning was the, the music. <laughs> We're going to invite you, Charles Holt, to the microphone now to sing I Shall Not Be Moved for us. This is from Mr. Holt's show, Martin and Music. I shall not, I shall not be moved. I shall not, I shall not be moved just like a tree that's planted by the waters. I shall not be moved. I shall not, I shall not be moved. I shall not, I shall not be moved just like a tree that's planted by the waters. I shall not be moved. I shall not be moved, performed here in the studio by Charles Holt at the beginning of what promises to be a great hour. You're listening to BYU Radio. I'm Sam Payne, visiting today with singer and storyteller Charles Holt, currently touring with his show Martin and Music, a performance that focuses on the civil rights movement. Charles, you've talked fondly about your grandmother. Of course, we mentioned her at the beginning of the show. She was born in 1901, which means she saw a lot of social change over the course of her life. Is she the one that first introduced you to some of the knowledge that you have about Jim Crow and segregation and some of the things that have taken life on stage as, as you do this show? Well, she certainly was uh, um, a very uh, great source of education with regard to how the country had come together at the turn of the century. But my father and my mother also told stories. The unique thing about this beautiful community called Lake Providence is that my grandparents, my great-grandparents, and my great-great-grandparents were in that general area. Yeah. So they all converged on Lake Providence in 1868 after Reverend Larry A. Thompson had declared that this was where he was going to build his church. <laughs> so, you know, coming upon this, uh, this beautiful landscape of history, my grandmother, uh, who didn't talk a lot, but when she spoke, she spoke um, in terms of how the climate, if you will, had changed. How you were able to walk down the street on the same sidewalk. Um, how things had changed in terms of education. Son, get your education. 
graduate from high school. It's the only free education that you'll ever have. Mm -hmm. But go on to get your education because it'll serve you. And we're talking, uh, we're talking about a, a young lady whose educational progress was somewhat limited. Right. Uh, my father uh, didn't even graduate from high school. So that was certainly one type of learning, yeah. the educational learning, but a lot of what my grandmother and a lot of particularly what my parents taught me were the language of mannerisms, the language of the body and how it spoke to certain things mm -hmm. and how it spoke to the past. Growing up, um, I was often, uh, you know, inquisitive about why does she stand like that? Why does she hold her head down? Why does he look like that? And it couldn't be explained to me in, you know, in, in any other wording except, you know, they've been through a lot, son. Huh. They've been through a lot. You know, later on, I, I uh, experienced some of those sure. things myself. Yeah. So I, I began to understand what those lilts in the yeah. voice, you know, what they, what was being spoken under right. the tongue. Children today get introduced to the speeches of Martin Luther King Jr. in, mm -hmm. you know, in, in video presentations or in textbooks. Mm -hmm. uh, it's very much history, sure. right, for the yes. for the children of today. Yes. How did you first come to be exposed to those speeches? I was in forensics in seventh grade, and so we would go to other schools and compete. And you know, growing up in the South, the greatest thing you could be, according to my parents was a preacher. And you know, growing up, if you were a preacher, you were somebody. Right. My grandmother wanted me to be a preacher. Now, we had progressed, and my mother said, no, he's going to be a business executive because he's going to college, and he's going to get out and go right into corporate America. But being a preacher was still of high esteem. As a matter of fact, Reverend Larry A. Thompson was highly respected, not just within the Lake Providence community, but he was respected around Nashville, and yeah. so were the preachers that came after that. So, yes, let's go ahead, and who would be great to take a speech from? And Oh, Martin Luther King Jr., my mother suggested. He was also a preacher. <laughs> <laughs> so, so this was for you a, a, a seventh grade forensics project. I have a dream speech. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Oh, for heaven's sakes. Yes. Now, when you, when you perform these speeches, mm -hmm. what is it of Dr. King that you're trying to capture? Are you trying to do an impersonation? Or are you trying to rather use some of the, the, the tools that you have as a person to convey some of the meaning behind the speeches? Mm -hmm. What is it about Dr. King that you're trying to capture? You know, Dr. King's voice is infectious, but I don't try to recreate his voice. What I listen to are the words. And sometimes the words give indication to embellishment or a, a type of inflection because these words apply to today. So what we're trying to get are those who don't have a reference. Understanding that these words that were spoken many, many years ago, how do they apply to today's landscape and society? How do they land on us through what we're seeing with the eyes of appearances and hearing and feeling. Tell us just a little bit about Fun Town. This is the piece that we're going to hear now. Oh, Fun Town is, uh, is a speech about his, his oldest daughter, Yolanda. Yolanda made her transition uh, a few years ago. Mm -hmm. 
When she was out of school, she would always like to go to the airport with her father as he was flying out. And they would pass this amusement park called Fun Town. And she had her eyes set on that roller coaster. <laughs> and she would always say, Dad, I want to go to Fun Town. And so it's about her wanting to go to Fun Town, but more so, how does a father tell his daughter that she can't go to Fun Town sure. because she's black? Let's have you step to the microphone and, and perform this speech for us. This is Charles Holt here in the BYU studio performing Fun Town. My little daughter loves to ride to the airport with me. She says to me so often, Daddy, you just go over and over and over again. And one of the ways she consoles herself in the fact that her daddy has to go away so much is to ride to the airport with me. And she can do it if she isn't in school. And on the way to the airport in Atlanta, we pass by what is known as Fun Town. This is an amusement park center for children. Little children go to play, something like Disneyland, something like the very fine amusement centers across the country. And she would look over and say, Daddy, I want to go to Fun Town. Well, we were passing by in the automobile, and I could jump to another subject, but you know, I didn't want to have to explain to my six-year-old daughter that she couldn't go to Fun Town because of the color of her skin. But the other day, we were at home, and like most children, she likes to look at television, and she was looking at television, and she ran downstairs and said, Daddy, I've been telling you I want to go to Fun Town, and they were just talking about Fun Town on the television, and I want you to take me to Fun Town. I've been all over the country talking about segregation and discrimination, and I thought I could answer most of the questions that came up, but I was speechless for this one. Speechless in this present moment. I didn't want to have to explain to her she couldn't go to Fun Town because she was colored. But I said to myself, I have to face this situation once and for all. I sat down at the table. My wife was sitting across from me, and I called my little girl over, and I told her to have a seat on my knees. And I looked down into her eyes, and I said, Yolanda, we have a problem. You know, sometimes people don't do the right thing, and they are a little misguided. And they have a system where white people go certain places and colored people go certain places, and they have Fun Town like that, so they don't allow colored children to go to Fun Town. But I didn't want her to develop a sense of bitterness and hatred in her heart, so I had to rush on to say, now, not all white people are like that. There are some white people right here in Atlanta and all over this country and all over the world who are right on this issue. And I could see tears flowing from her eyes, and that, at that point I said to her, Yoki, even though you can't go into Fun Town, I want you to know that you are as good as anybody who goes into Fun Town. And I want you to know that we are working hard every day to get Fun Town open and to get many other places open. And I submit to you 
that in the not too distant future, Funtown and every other town will be open for all God's children because we're going to work for it. Storyteller Charles Holt sharing Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s speech, Fun Town. I'm Sam Payne. Great to be with you today. You know, he was right, wasn't he? Fun Town was eventually desegregated. He was able to take his children there. Yes. Okay, yeah. Talk a little bit about... Uh, the next song we're going to hear is, is If I Can Help Somebody. Yes. Talk a little bit about that song. You know, I think a lot of people wanted to revel in the achievements and the accomplishments of Dr. Martin Luther King and surely being the youngest um, at the age of 35 to win the Nobel Peace Prize and having all kinds of awards and scholarly admonishments and those types of things put on him. He wasn't so concerned with those things. Hmm. He wanted people to know at the end of the day, I wanted to make someone's life better. I wanted to create a platform for peace and nonviolence. I wanted, if anything, those accolades to get me into places so I could share this consciousness of harmony with as many people as it would allow me to engage. I want people to know that I tried to help somebody. And so the song comes out of that type of reverence for the call and not necessarily what all of those other things, the distinguished uh, achievements that he, he made that came along with it, but the call itself. I can't get out of my head as you're talking about Martin Luther King desiring to make people's lives better. I can't, I can't get out of my head. Yolanda, go into fun town. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to invite you to do a couple of pieces now for us. This is If I Can Help Somebody and also The Best. Of course, this is Charles Holt with us and his show, Martin and Music. If I can help somebody as I pass along If I can cheer somebody with a word or song If I can show somebody who is traveling wrong then my living shall not be in vain. If I can help somebody as I pass along, if I can cheer somebody with a word or song If I can show somebody who is traveling wrong Then my living shall not be in vain My living shall not be in vain, no, my living shall not be. 
vain, oh, if I can help somebody as I pass along, then my living shall not be in vain, no, no, my living shall not be in vain, no, my living shall not be in vain, oh, if I can help somebody as I pass along, then my living shall not be New opportunities have opened within the last few months, and this will be even greater all over the United States and all over the world. Doors have been opened that were closed to the Negro and other minorities in the past. Now the great challenge is to be ready to enter these doors when they open. Ralph Waldo Emerson said in a lecture back in 1871 that if a man can write a better book or preach a better sermon or make a better mousetrap than his neighbor, even if he builds his house in the woods, the world would make a beaten path to his door. This will become increasingly true. Now that means we're going to have to work hard. We're going to have to burn the midnight oil sometime. And we're going to have to take advantage of new opportunities. And we must set out to do our life's work so well that nobody could do it better. We must seek to do a good job. But we must not seek merely to do a good Negro job for if you are setting to be merely a good Negro doctor or a good Jewish lawyer, or a good Latin teacher, or a good Asian skilled laborer, or a good female barber, you have already flunked your matriculation exam for entrance into the University of Integration. We must be ready. We must set out to do a good job and to do that job so well that the living, the dead, or the unborn couldn't do it better. As I've said so often, if it falls your lot to be a street sweeper, go on out in street sweeps like Michelangelo carved marble. Sweep streets like Raphael painted pictures. Sweep streets like Beethoven composed music and like Shakespeare wrote poetry. Sweep streets so well that all the hosts of heaven and earth will have to pause and say, here lived a great sweet streeper who swept his job well. Oh, this is it. If you can't be a pine on the top of the hill, then be a shrub in the valley. But be the best little shrub on the side of the rill. Be a bush if you can't be a tree. If you can't be a highway, just be a trail. If you can't be the sun, be a star. For it isn't by size that you win or you fail. Just be the best of what you are. 
Today on BYU Radio, we're featuring excerpts from Martin and Music, a performance that includes the words of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and music of the Civil Rights Movement. I'm Sam Payne, joined in the studio by our guest, Charles Holt. Charles Holt was the first African-American to play the role of Rocky in a Rocky Horror Picture Show in Europe. He performed for five years on Broadway in Disney's production of The Lion King, also in Smokey Joe's Cafe and Jesus Christ Superstar. He's recorded two albums of music, Rushing Over Me and I Am. Of course, he's also a fan of Donny Hathaway. Mm-hmm. And I'll tell you, Charles, I, I have to acknowledge we've got Mark Waite behind the board in the in the control room today and Jackie Tateishi producing the show sitting next to me here. And I'm looking around as these guys are, as you're singing there, and I can see their heads bobbing and, mm-hmm. and every once in a while the occasional amen. <laughs> and I'm thinking, of course, about these wonderful iterations of these songs songs, these a cappella iterations of these songs, I think we we get accustomed to music on stage that's produced to a greater degree than that. And what what do you see the effect of these simple performances of these songs having on audiences? Um, I'll have to go back to my grandmother uh, when I talk about that, because my grandmother forced me (laughs) at the age of three and four to sit by her knee, the left one, (laughs) as she pretended like she was tapping out these notes on a piano. She would play on her knees and she would begin to sing. And uh, she said, just open your mouth and repeat after me. Well, after, uh, after a while, my grandmother would begin to cry. Mm. And I would, I would say, Granny, what's going on? Please come back, Granny, come back. <laughs> I didn't know what was happening to her. But at that time, even at the age of, 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 of four years old, I knew that something else had visited my grandmother. And there was that ability for music, the power of music, to bypass the intellect, to rush straight to that place where it was needed in the soul. I think, you know, the a cappella music in any type of venue, it causes us to listen which is a great skill. And if we can listen, we sooner or later tune into what it is that the part of us that needs that is listening to. What is the healing virtue? What is the happiness virtue? You know, we have all types of singers, happy singers, those who heal us, those who make us think, who give us a great perspective on life, but certainly music can do that in its simplest form. You've described those moments with your grandmother uh, using the phrase, uh, something had filled the room when she began to make make music. Mm -hmm. What is that thing that filled the room when she began to make music? Um, What I came to find out is in my, you know, when I was, when I was doing Broadway, I was in an audition one day and I was listening, you know, it's so competitive. They have you come into a studio that's much like this. Mm -hmm. The person sings before a panel of five. Well, everybody else who's waiting to audition gets to hear that. They're standing outside. So I remember when I first started auditioning, I was hearing, I was listening for the high notes, the low notes. Okay, I'm singing that same song, so right there I'll embellish where he did not. And Oh, because I wanted a job. Sure, you know? yeah. <laughs> and after a while, it was during uh, the time that I was in Lion King, I wasn't going to go to a particular 
particular audition and I decided at the last minute I'm going to go. But I'm not going to sing this song like I usually sing it. I was ready then to experience what I experienced when my, with, with my grandmother. Mm-hmm. Music had become a much larger scope of living for me. And it was much bigger than an embellishment. It was much bigger than a bending of a note or a top note or a low note. Yeah. It became what I had lived. And I knew that I could go through that script of song, if you will, and certain words would jump out because I knew what they meant from the life that I had lived. Mm -hmm. And I think when my grandmother sang, Great is thy faithfulness, um, morning by morning, new mercies I see, I I know she knew that. She knew that waking up every day was a new gift from who she called God. It took you a while to mm-hmm. come around to the work that you do now. Yes. For a while, you worked for IBM. Mm-hmm. You, you, there were people in your family who wanted you to pursue a, an athletic career. Yes. Right? And all of that time, of course, it, it, it's not for a moment as if the, 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 the gift of music and your interest in music and the important place that music occupied in your heart and in your life mm-hmm. lay dormant, mm-hmm. even though perhaps you're, later on you would, you would receive the training that's led to your work now. Right. Mm-hmm. But what, what, what were some of the... What were some of the manifestations of music in your life as a performer, even when you were working for IBM, even when you were doing some of these other things at the core of your life? What role did music play for you? Well, music was an entertain, uh, a form of entertainment. Um, on Saturday, Saturday was work day. My mother, my sister, and I would get up and clean the house. And my sister is over a decade older than I am, so I got all of that good R&B. Yeah. And every now and then, my mother would say, child, put some, uh, put some Aretha Franklin on <laughs> and some Al Green. My father would be out on the porch listening to B.B. Uh, King and Billie Holiday. So music was a form of, of entertainment, but I couldn't help but feel in especially with Billie Holiday, the life and the pain, because there was something else. There was another indication to what music really was. And so I remember telling the story that even running down the football field when I was in high school trying to chase this football dream of being a professional football player, (laughs) music was at my elbow and at my knees at that time (laughs) as well. And when I got to college, I had pretty much... Um, stated, you know, music is just something that I I listen to and that I hear. And I got an opportunity to sing, and um, one of my mentors, he's now a mentor, he came up to me and he said, Charles, when you sing, everything opens up. Do you realize how you touch people's lives? And I had to be honest. I said, no, I don't. (laughs) But then Granny's demonstration came back, and I began to ask myself, who do I want to sound like? Because Donny Hathaway's voice just melted into me. And I said, I want to sound like him. I want to sound like Sam Cooke. And then all of a sudden I said, but I can only sound like me. Yeah. And what is my voice? And so my grandmother's demonstration gave me indication of how I could find it. The moment that you struck out for New York City with $400 in your pocket, mm-hmm. you know, there's a, there's a, that, that's quite a leap. Yes. That's quite a leap. Uh, what, what was it that finally made you say, I'm, I'm going to take that leap? Um, I had gotten fired. I worked for IBM for two years. Mm-hmm. I left IBM, much to the chagrin of my mother. <laughs> and another company called me and asked me to come on board. So I moved from Memphis and IBM 
to Atlanta and this other company. And a year later, they fired me. Well, in the meantime, I was going to jazz clubs on the weekend to wash all of that corporate stuff off. Sure. And that's when I found out music had another area of dance with me. It wanted to dance again with me, and I was willing to dance with it again. And I got a big break. Uh, Kenny Leon, who was the artistic director of the Alliance Theater in Atlanta, had um, someone drop out of his show called The Amen Corner, which is based on um, James Baldwin's novel. Mm. And three people in the cast, uh, as the story, story would uh, be told, told him that I was the one to bring in to fill this space. So he called me. I'd never met Mr. Leon, maybe in passing. Hello. Yeah. And he said, look, we've never really formally met, but there are three people in the cast who say you would be good to fit this, you know, and we go up in three weeks. The premiere's in three weeks. You need to get into rehearsals now. And while I was in rehearsals, some things struck me, but it was a, a performance, a nightly performance where I got an, uh, 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 an intuitive hit that there's something that was calling me. And I heard a voice say, it's time. I had had an experience with a gentleman who was going back to New York to do Smokey Joe's Cafe, yeah. who told me, go get the soundtrack, you'd be great for this. So when I heard the voice say, it's time, I immediately thought in my naive <laughs> consciousness, it's time to move to New York, and I went. Wow. Mm -hmm. Well, it's worked out for you. Yeah, it it's has. It's worked out for you. Yes, we're going to invite has. you to the mic one more time. Well, a, a number of times, actually. But, but, but for now, we're going to invite you to the mic to perform for us something else from Martin and me. This is, of course, the wonderful, familiar, beautiful song, Amazing Grace. Amazing Grace how sweet the sound that saved a soul like mine. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see ah, amazing grace. The, the sound that, that saved a soul like mine. Now I 
I'm found was blind, but now, now I see. Amazing grace performed by Charles Holt here in our studio. What a pleasure to hear that song. Who doesn't love Amazing Grace? You know, it's got me thinking about uh, the role that uh, church music and church life played in uh, the civil rights movement. That seemed to be sort of the, 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 the church seemed to be sort of the nexus for a lot, of the, a lot of the emotion, a lot of the unity, a lot of the work that came out of the civil rights movement. Talk about the relationship between the movement and the church. Well, a large part of the movement was based in the church. And I think from things and stories that I've read and heard about is that the nucleus of what Dr. Martin Luther King and his leaders wanted to create could only be created in a type of forum or space where his voice and his vision of nonviolence had some kind of placement. And I think in the church is where we were ready to listen to how can we take these words of Jesus the Christ and apply them when we are outfaced with violent acts. Mm. So the church was a haven. It was not only a starting point for um, convening for these groups, but it was a haven. And I think it was, when I think about it, you know, when I asked my grandmother, she said it was the place where you went to wash all the week's mess off. You could go to church and you could shout, you could sing, you could dance if you want to, play the tambourine. But it was one of those places where you could get what you needed so you could go back out and face it again. Mm -hmm. And so I think, uh, you know, that part of the that part of that uh, awareness and consciousness around what was being created at the time when Dr. King came along, I think the church was that arm was the arm of security saying, you know, you have this to build from. Yeah. Yeah. We're in the studio today with Charles Holt. We're talking about the civil rights movement. And of course, we're talking about his show, Martin and Music, with Charles Holt performing Dr. King's sermon, I've Been to the Mountaintop. Thank you very kindly, my friends. As I listened to Ralph Abernathy and his eloquent and generous introduction, and then throughout listening to everybody else, I wondered. Who's he talking about? <laughs> it's always good to have your closest friend and associate to say something good about you. And Ralph Abernathy is the best friend that I have in the world. I'm delighted to see each of you here tonight in spite of a storm warning. You reveal that you are determined to go on anyhow. You know, as I look around, I, 
I noticed that something is happening. Something is happening in Memphis. Something is happening in our world. And you know, if I was standing at the beginning of time with the possibility of taking a kind of general and panoramic view of the whole of human history up to now, and the Almighty said to me, Martin Luther King, which age would you like to live in? I would take my mental flight by Egypt and I would watch God's children in their magnificent trek from the dark dungeons of Egypt through, or rather across the Red Sea, through the wilderness on toward the Promised Land. And in spite of its magnificence, I wouldn't stop there. I would move on by Greece and take my, my mind to Mount Olympus and I would see Plato and Aristotle and Socrates and Euripides and assembled around the Parthenon and I would watch them around the Parthenon as they discussed the great and eternal issues of reality, but I wouldn't stop there. I would go on even to the great heyday of the Roman Empire and I would see developments around there through various emperors and leaders but I wouldn't stop there. I wouldn't even come up to the day of the Renaissance and, and get a quick picture of all that the Renaissance did for the cultural and aesthetic life of man but I wouldn't stop there. I would come on up even to 1863 and watch a vacillating president by the name of Abraham Lincoln finally come to the conclusion that he had to sign the Emancipation Proclamation. But I wouldn't stop there. Strangely enough, I would turn to the Almighty and I'd say, if you allow me to live just a few years in the second half of the 20th century, I will be happy. That's a strange statement to make because the world is all messed up. The nation is sick. Trouble is in the land. Confusion all around. That's a strange statement. But I know somehow that only when it's dark enough can you see the stars. And I see God working in this period of the 20th century in a way that men, in some strange way, are responding. Something is happening in our world. The masses of people are rising up. And wherever they are assembled today, whether they are in Johannesburg, South Africa, Nairobi, Kenya, Accra, Ghana, New York City, Atlanta, Georgia, Jackson, Mississippi, or Memphis, Tennessee, the cry is always the same. We want to be free. We mean business now, and we're determined to gain our rightful place in God's world. And that's all this whole thing is about. We aren't engaged in any negative protest and in any negative arguments with anybody. We're saying that we are determined to be men and women. We are determined to be people. We are saying that we are God's children too. And that we are God's children. And since we are, we don't have to live like we are forced to. The issue is the refusal here of Memphis to be fair and honest in its dealings with its public servants who happen to be sanitation workers. And we've got to say now to the nation, we know how it's coming out. For when people get caught up with that which is right and they are willing to sacrifice for it, there is no stopping point 
short of victory. I've been to the mountaintop. Excerpts from the last speech Martin Luther King Jr. ever gave, performed here in the studio on BYU Radio by Charles Holt. I'm Sam Payne. Of course, our guest today, singer and storyteller Charles Holt, has written two books, Between Me and Dad. That's a book that will be released later this year. And Intuitive Rebel, tuning in to the voice that matters. Mm-hmm. Now, Mr. Holt, in, a, in an interview about Intuitive Rebel, you said once that you were a, disengaged from your inner GPS and that you had to learn that it was not about what I have, but what I know about who I am. Yes. Talk a little bit about that. Um, you know, all of my stories go back to childhood and uh, the good, the bad, and the not so good, and the awful. And growing up, one of the perks of being the third child, the youngest child, by over a decade, my brother's 15 years older than me, my sister's 11 years older than I am, and I'm the youngest on my father's side in terms of grandchildren by a decade. (laughs) One of the perks is you get what you want, you get spoiled, and I was spoiled for sure. The other thing that I learned hard was that everybody had my life planned for me before I was six years old. And somewhere in there, I learned to get what I wanted by appeasing those dreams and wishes. Grew up, I was a straight A student, always inclined to do well in school, but my mother was really responsible for that, my mother and my grandmother. Um, My brother uh, wanted me to get involved in sports and my uncles chimed in yeah he's gonna be a great baseball player he's gonna be on (laughs) television one day I can see it and so as I matriculated through school and went to college I graduated from college I found myself so um Disappointed. I didn't get drafted. I didn't get picked up as a free agent. Playing professional football was a dream that I had for years since sixth grade. And so now I dive into corporate America, and it's not what I thought it was. Not the right suit for me. So I'm at a pinnacle, and I'm asking myself, I thought it would work. That's what I had built all of this up to be, was this grand life that I would live, and it's all crumbling. So it, it got me to ask the question, who am I, and what is it that I want to experience? And so I believe that as we ask the question, somewhere in the question is the answer. And I was listening for the answer, and I, jumped into performing arts and moved to New York, and New York was where I really became conscious of understanding that I could create my life from a whole new perspective. It was gonna be work, and the work was inner work. And I know that I had listened to so many well wishes from the exterior, but there was a place inside of me that I, I needed to tune into because it gave me the truth of who I was. And later on, I asked the question, why am I here? And that's when the books, the CDs, and all of that intention behind being a beneficial presence on the planet began to unfold. And I 
saw clearly that it had all been a setup up to the point of me really um, learning to ask those poignant questions and doing the work of self-discovery and self-counseling sometimes and the excavation of my own soul. Sure. Well, with that as an appropriate setup, we're going to ask you to sing I Am Mm -hmm. as perhaps an introduction to I Have a Dream, which we'll have Charles Holt perform for us now. An angel asked me, do you know who you are? The question and the answer is not very far. The song of the sages, the knowledge of the ages is living where you reside. You have the key that unlocks the door to enter in that sacred place you haven't gone before where deep meets deep soul to soul feel that connection as the truth unfolds I am I am I am I am Yes, you are the key that unlocks the door to freedom and leads you to me. Look deep inside you. Trust the force that guides you. It knows a way. There's no separation. We're one in the same. A child of the creator known by different names. The Alpha and Omega, the eternal flame that burns deep inside you. Do you know my name? I am from the mountains to the oceans. I am from the rocks to the trees. I am all the stars and constellations. I am you are. We are the great I am. I'm happy to join with you today in what will go down in history is the greatest demonstration for freedom in the history of our nation. Five score years ago, a great American in whose symbolic shadow we stand today signed the Emancipation Proclamation. This momentous decree came as a great beacon light of hope to millions of Negro slaves who had been scarred and seared in the flames of withering injustice. It came as a joyous daybreak to end the long night of their captivity. But 100 years later, the Negro still is not free. 100 years later, the life of the Negro is still sadly crippled by the manacles of segregation and the chains of discrimination. 100 years later, the Negro lives on a lonely island of poverty in the midst of a vast ocean of material prosperity 100 years later 
the Negro is still languishing in the corners of American society and finds himself and herself an exile in his own land. So we, we have come here today to, to, to dramatize a shameful condition. In a sense, we have come to our nation's capital to cash a check. When the architects of our republic wrote the magnificent words of the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence, they were signing a promissory note to which every American was to fall heir. For the land of the free, This note was a promise that all men, yes, black men as well as white men, would be guaranteed the unalienable rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. It is obvious today that the America that we know has defaulted on this promissory note insofar as her citizens of color are concerned. Instead of honoring this sacred obligation, America has given the Negro people a bad check, a check which has come back marked insufficient funds. Oh, but we refuse to believe that the bank of justice is bankrupt. We refuse to believe that there are insufficient funds in the great vaults of opportunity of this nation. So we've come to cash this check. A check that will give us, upon demand, the riches of freedom and the security of justice. We have also come to this hollowed spot to remind America of the fierce urgency of now. This is no time to engage in the luxury of cooling off or to take the tranquilizing drug of gradualism. Now is the time to make real the promises of democracy. Now is the time to rise from the dark and desolate valley of segregation to the sunlit path of racial justice. Now is the time to lift our nation from the quicksands of racial injustice to the solid rock of brotherhood. Now is the time to make justice a reality for all of God's children. There's something else that I must say to my people who stand on the warm threshold which leads into the palace of justice. In the process of gaining a rightful place, we must not be guilty of wrongful deeds. Let me say that again. As we gain in the consciousness of coming together, we must not get frustrated and rely on wrongful deeds to instruct our path forward. We must forever conduct our struggle on the high plane of dignity and discipline. We must now allow our creative protest to degenerate into physical violence. We must not do that. Again and again, we must rise to the majestic heights of meeting physical force with soul force. As we walk, we must make the pledge that we shall always march ahead. We cannot turn back. They are those who are asking the devotees of civil rights, when will you be satisfied? We can never be satisfied as long as a Negro is a victim of the unspeakable horrors of police brutality. We can never be satisfied as long as our bodies are heavy with the fatigue of travel. 
cannot gain lodging in the motels of the highways and the hotels of the city. We cannot be satisfied as long as a Negro's basic mobility is from a smaller ghetto to a larger one. It would be fatal for our nation to overlook the urgency of this movement. This sweltering summer of the Negro's legitimate discontentment will not pass until there is an invigorating autumn of freedom and equality. God bless you. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. gave his moving I Have a Dream speech in August 1963 during the March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom. And we've been fortunate enough to hear excerpts from that performed live just now by Charles Holt. And preceding his performance of the I Have a Dream speech, the song I Am, the title track from Mr. Holt's album. Charles Holt is a Broadway actor, inspirational speaker, recording artist, entrepreneur, author, and nationally recognized storyteller. He's been a guest speaker at TEDx, at the Engage Diversity Leadership Conference, and at the National Conference on Race and Ethnicity. Charles Holt, thanks so much for being here. It's just wonderful. Oh, my pleasure, Sam. My pleasure. Thank you. Charles Holt is in Utah as a part of the Orem Public Library series, Created Equal, America's Civil Rights Struggle. The series is funded by the National Endowment for the Humanities, Gilder Lerman Institute of American History, and an on-stage in Utah grant from the Utah Division of Arts and Museums. For more information about upcoming Orem Library events, including performances and family programs, please visit oremlibrary.org. Highway 89 is a live performance program from the studios of BYU Broadcasting in Provo, Utah. The recording engineer is Mark Waite, and the show's producer is Jackie Tateishi. I'm Sam Payne. Thanks for listening.